The reading is taken from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Good afternoon, everyone. It's great to be uh, with you again this afternoon. Thank you for sparing time over your lunch hour to be here. And over these three Wednesdays, we've been taking a fresh look at Luke chapter 1 and these birth narratives of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Luke. Over the past couple of weeks, we've seen that these ancient stories haven't been recorded as a childhood scrapbook, but that Luke has very carefully, very intentionally placed these events in a specific order, told them, in a particular way, so that followers of Jesus Christ would have a renewed and richer confidence in him. As we come to today's passage, this famous reading from Luke chapter 1, let me ask you a question. What do you make of Jesus Christ? What do you make of the person of Jesus Christ? A few weeks ago, I was reading a blog that I check in with occasionally. It's written by a friend um, and who has quite wide-ranging interests in, um, in art and culture, in writing and music, and um, asks bigger questions too about authenticity and trust. Reading his blog a few weeks ago, I was quite struck by a video that he posted. It, it's a short film that was shot over three months or so, featuring the artwork of the actor Jim Carey. Now, if you've ever watched a Jim Carey film you might be quite surprised to hear that he's interested in art and the bigger questions of life, but he is. And uh, in this video, he says that he he started painting um, after the breakdown of a relationship, and now it's a huge thing in his life. And um, as the film goes on, he says that there are two obsessions particularly in his artwork. The first is colour. So the film shows him suspended over these huge canvases, Jackson Pollock style, and he's just splashing colour everywhere. 
The second obsession uh, in his artwork is the person of Jesus Christ. And he's done a number of portraits of Jesus. As he's speaking over the video, Carey says that he doesn't know whether Jesus existed um, or what he means, to use his own language, uh, but that his hope is that through his paintings, people will find some sense of healing. He explains that as you look at the face of Jesus, uh, you can find every race in his face and that um, every race of people on earth imagines Jesus as their own. Quite a striking thing to say, I think. What really stood out to me about Kerry's comments is that the person figure of Jesus Christ still exerts a real hold over the popular imagination. And yet at the same time, the figure of Jesus can be quite elusive to many of us. As I think Jim Kerry himself demonstrates, there is a risk that we think about Jesus and find uh, and make him out to be in our own image, that we project onto him what we want to find there. What do you make of Jesus Christ sitting here this afternoon? Luke's writing his gospel um, to give us a clearer focus and understanding of who Jesus is, and therefore what God is like. And he does that in a revolutionary way, in this scene, in this story of the angel Gabriel announcing Jesus' birth to the Virgin Mary. But before we get there, let's just take a brief moment to explore some of the issues around the angel and around the whole question of the virgin birth and the question of the miraculous. We didn't pick it up uh, last week, but I'm conscious that for some of us who are here, The story of angels and virgin births takes us into the realm of fiction, into the realm of make-believe. Luke claims at the start of chapter 1 that he's writing history, that this is a historical narrative. How do we take that claim seriously if, uh, just a few verses in, we're talking about angels and a virgin birth? Perhaps one thing to acknowledge is uh, that scepticism about the virgin birth in particular isn't new. In Jesus' own day, one of the slurs that was thrown at him by his religious critics uh, was that he was illegitimately born, that he was the product of a sexual relationship between Mary and someone who wasn't Joseph of Nazareth. His critics were trying to associate him with immorality and therefore silence him and invalidate everything that he had to say. Yet, in a strange way, that scepticism, I think, is is actually quite helpful because it begins to open up the question of why Luke would want to include this story unless he was really persuaded of its authenticity and of its significance. I think there are two very good reasons for Luke not to include this story. The first is Luke's own professional reputation. For the most part, um, historians and scholars think that the person writing Luke's Gospel was the Luke identified as the travelling companion of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. And if that thesis is right, then the Luke who wrote Luke's Gospel is a doctor and uh, a physician. And even in the first century, doctors knew where babies come from. There wasn't much mystery about it, even back then. 
So consider what Luke has to lose personally if this story isn't true. Who's going to go to the doctor who thinks that babies are delivered by angels? Secondly, Luke was very aware of the context into which he was writing. The world of first century Judaism was one of the most conservative cultures in human history. Conservative politically, morally, socially, theologically. So to include a story like this, that could potentially cast doubt on the central figure in the Christian religion, is to take an enormous risk. The whole Christian community could be discredited, disadvantaged in all sorts of ways, if it were thought that the person they worshipped was the product of an illicit relationship. You see, our our culture tends to sentimentalise this story. We wrap it up in tinsel and uh, feel warm and fuzzy about it once a year. Yeah, the angel and the virgin birth. It provokes the same sorts of feelings as the annual John Lewis advert. Out now, by the way, in case you haven't seen it. But ancient cultures would have been absolutely scandalised by this story for for its impropriety and inappropriateness. Now, of course, none of that means that, that the story definitely happened in the way that Luke tells it. But it is to say that there must be some reason for including this story, and if it weren't true, if it didn't happen this way, why on earth include it and take the risk with it? It's not even that Luke tries to hide the details particularly. He tells us three times in two verses that Mary was a virgin. It's a detail that really matters to him. But as well as its authenticity, there is something more going on in this story than just a concern for what really happened. Through this story, Luke begins to reshape our view of who God is. That's a big claim. Let me, uh, let me explain it a, a little bit. At the, um, at the end of uh, last year, I went to see um, an art uh, exhibition by the German artist Anselm Kiefer. I don't know if that name uh, rings a bell to anyone. It was in the White Cube Gallery in Bermondsey. The exhibition was called uh, Valhalla, um, and it's based on uh, Norse mythology uh, around the um, final resting place of warriors slain in battle. It's an extraordinary exhibition. The entire gallery was um, reimagined as what Valhalla, the final resting place of um, the dead, would feel like. So from the moment you walked in, um, it was a, an extraordinary space to be in. Through his whole career, Kiefer has had an interest in spiritual things. He was raised uh, as a Catholic and um, has got a very funny story to tell about his first communion. Do come and ask me about that afterwards if you'd like to. Um, But through his whole career, he's had an interest in spiritual things and has used a lot of biblical um, Jewish and Christian imagery in his artwork. Around the time of the exhibition that I went to see, the the BBC interviewed Kiefer and um, asked him about his work and his own spiritual beliefs. In one of his answers, he said this. He said, I believe not in a personal God... But it is evident that there is something far above us who we cannot understand. More and more we ask ourselves why we are here and for what reason. No one knows it. So for this reason, you are always searching for something above us. 
What's striking is that in this narrative, Luke turns that picture on its head. He tells us that the God made known in Jesus isn't someone who is far, far above us. He isn't someone that we need to search out. Luke tells us that he reached out to us by becoming one of us. You see, the virgin birth assures us that whilst Jesus became, uh, that Jesus became fully human, he became one of us. He shared our flesh and blood. In his love, God united humanity to himself through his son. He committed himself to restoring and renewing his broken creation by entering into it. God drew near to us in Jesus. Is that the God that you know? The God who isn't far, far above, but came into the world because he was determined to love you and to win your love for him. That's the God that's announced by the angel to Mary. Yet that's not all that's going on uh, in this scene. Because as with the birth of John the Baptist that we uh, looked at last week, the angel tells Mary what this human child has come to do. And the descriptions come in verses 31 uh, to 33 as the angel name-checks one of the greats from Israel's history. This child will be the son of the Most High. He has a royal title, but moreover he has a royal job description because he will sit on the throne of his father, David. King David from the Old Testament. In other words, this announcement that the angel Gabriel makes is about the restoration of the people of Israel. The angel tells Mary that God is keeping his word to his people, is fulfilling all of the promises that he made to them. He hasn't forgotten the covenants he made. His promised ruler is coming. The job description really could be summed up in just one word, The one coming is the Messiah. But in first century Israel, that claim would have sounded almost as unbelievable as the story of a virgin birth. Israel knew many messiahs. There were many political leaders in Israel in the first century, people who could spark a rebellion against the occupying Roman uh, power, restore some national pride for a while, only to see it fizzle out and ultimately fail, dashing again the hopes of the people. What chance is there that this is anything more than just one more Messiah in a very long line? And that weariness, I think, persists to this day. There have been many messiahs down the centuries, many people, many leaders who have promised to make things great again, and yet the world feels just as broken as it has ever done. Back in the summer, I um, I remember watching a a news report that was um, filmed in Florida after the, uh, following the destruction caused by Hurricane Irma. One um, elderly man, he must have been in his 80s, I think, or even 90s, was interviewed as he was wading waist-deep through water in his kitchen and front room. 
the camera sort of panned around his property and uh, on the outside of his house you could see all sorts of regular household items just floating and bobbing around. You know, there's a toaster and a kettle and a pillow. And the scene was really, really sad. And um, the camera panned to the man's fence that ran along the side of his house. And on the fence were painted three words. God is love. And he thought to yourself, really? How can that possibly be true in this particular instance? I wonder what you make of that this afternoon, what what you would say to that. Let me say uh, at least this. The God that Luke is talking about, the God that Luke tells us stepped into our world, walked right in to a world of pain and suffering. He was born into relative poverty. He lived as a refugee in his early years. He had an itinerant lifestyle. He was disowned by his family and abandoned by his friends. He was tried unjustly for a crime of which he wasn't guilty and was then nailed to a cross on a hill outside Jerusalem. The king who came to sit on David's throne was crowned with thorns so that you and I would be brought into his kingdom and family. That's the kind of king that he is. And therefore, Luke tells us, he's a king who is trustworthy and a king that we can have real hope about. Because he's a king who didn't come to exert power, but to lose it. Well, so what? What do we do with all that Luke has to say to us this afternoon? As we close, let's dwell just for a moment on Mary. Luke doesn't want us either to venerate Mary or to sideline her completely. He certainly doesn't want us to ignore her. He almost, as it were, puts the spotlight on her and contrasts her response to the angelic announcement with Zachariah's at the end of chapter 1. And he highlights her trusting faith in God's purposes. I am the Lord's servant, she says in verse 38. May your word to me be fulfilled. It's easy to rush over these words and not see how demanding they might be. Because in describing herself as the Lord's servant, Mary commits herself to God's plans and purposes as the primary direction of her life. But for all that she knows, there might be an enormous cost to that decision. Because the potential scandal of her pregnancy throws into doubt her place in Joseph's household. And as a woman in that particular historical context, all of her worldly status depends upon her place in Joseph's household. But for her, as one commentator puts it, Partnership in the purpose of God transcends the claims of family. So in a society dominated by the family unit, there's something daring, almost subversive, about Mary's commitment expressed in in these words. Because she roots herself in God's plans for his world, rather than in the narratives by which everyone else in her society lives. The narratives of family, and security and stability. 
So Luke holds Mary up as a model and invites his readers to live in the same way, to be rooted in God, in his plans for his world and his people, rather than in many other narratives that would dominate their lives. And yet it's only possible to do that in response to the God who has drawn near, in response to the God who has displayed his commitment to his people and his love for the world. What might a response like that mean for you this week? I'm going to close in prayer and then we will sing again. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you again this afternoon for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that his coming into the world displays who you are, tells us that you are a God who is committed to his people, tells us that you are a God who is full of love. Please would you help us to live lives of loving faith and response to all that you have done for us in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.